Good music is what we want to hear. What do you mean, good music? It's what we dance to, what our children will dance to. And if you don't want to play it, then take your records and go home. Did you have a band? Good or bad? It's a great band. It's a bad band. It's like pizza, baby. It's good no matter what. There's music in the air. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I are going to talk to Don Felder about his experiences as a guitarist and a songwriter in the Eagles. Plus, we'll review the new albums from Q-Tip, formerly of A Tribe Called Quest, and indie rockers Deer Hunter. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. Well, there's no telling how much more rich the Beatles have gotten in the last few days, Jim, but I guarantee you that Viacom MTV Networks opened up the pocketbooks big time to bring the Beatles into the digital realm for the first time. It's interesting because everybody was talking about when would Beatles music become available digitally? The betting money was on iTunes getting a, a major deal with the Beatles, and that could possibly still happen. But the video game Rock Band, which is owned by Viacom, beat iTunes to the punch. They have scored a major deal with the Beatles to partner with them to license their music for the uh, Rock Band video game. Rock Band is one of the fastest growing video games in the country. In the last quarter, it sold 3.5 million copies. You know, it's interesting. Who would have thought this five years ago that a video game would be the way the Beatles would broach this new technology and, and get into this new world that's being it, created. It's rather sad and tawdry, if you ask me. It's like, I mean, here's this band that that, that forms as a garage band, and they, they play for drunken sailors in Hamburg. <laughs> they were the real deal. They were a real rock band, and now they're going to be part of the flashing lights of this stupid video game. So you don't like the video game very much, do you? (laughs) It just doesn't have anything to do with music as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, but this is the way uh, young people are consuming music these days. They're not buying CDs anymore, clearly, but they are accessing music through these video games because they play them all the time. And I think this is the latest effort by the Beatles to reach yet another new generation of rock fans and introduce them to their music. If Paul McCartney was concerned about that, he would not charge $350 a <laughs> ticket. I asked him that once point blank. What about the young guitar player who, who worships you the way you worship Little Richard when you were 15 and right. you saw him play in Liverpool? And McCartney did not care, and I don't think they care now. But at least now we know why Ringo Starr is too busy to sign autographs. <laughs> yes. So long it's not true Wanted a woman Never bargained for you Lots of people talking Few of them know Soul of a woman Was created below 
Greg, continuing with the cynical nature of today's news, I'm, I'm dazed and confused about this next story. Let me tell you. Mm. It is not yet 100% certain, but according to reports from Billboard and the BBC, it certainly looks as if Led Zeppelin is considering a tour without Robert Plant. Now, Led Zeppelin, of course, cannot tour with John Bonham. He's dead, all right? Plant is opting out, out of touring. What do you have left? You have as little left of Led Zeppelin as you do of The Who. But that's apparently not stopping Jimmy Page and John Paul Jones, the bassist and guitarist, from considering touring without their vocalist, never mind without their drummer. Uh, You know, there was that reunion last year for the Atlantic Records uh, Ahmet Erdogan celebration. It was cool as a one-off. Jason Bonham is not his dad. It's, It's silly to pretend that it is Led Zeppelin without one of the greatest drummers, if not the greatest drummer in rock history, but without the drummer and the vocalist. And they're considering, apparently for the first gig, uh, they were considering Miles Kennedy, who was the no-name voice who got together with those three other dudes from Creed as <laughs> Alter Bridge. Yeah. Another rumor is that uh, Chris Cornell is on tap for some gigs in the future. All of this sounds like parody, like satire. This can't be true, right? But John Paul Jones was quoted as saying, uh, yeah, we're considering it. We'd like to do it. It's feeling good. And there would probably be an album as well. This particularly breaks my heart. I mean, Jimmy Page, we know, sold his soul to Satan quite literally, <laughs> you know, many years ago. That's why he was so great, right? But Jones was a man of class and distinction. Guest on Sound Opinions always said, I don't, I don't ever want to go back, was proud that he did not partake of the plant and page tour. And, you know, I, I interviewed him once. I said, you know, how much money did Led Zeppelin make, right? And he said, you know, I don't own enough to have a Greek island. You know, (laughs) Robert and Jimmy do, but I'd never have to work another day in my life. So he was doing things like producing the Butthole Surfers, scoring strings for R.E.M., touring with Diamanda Galas, the avant-garde diva, and now to see him going out as a Led Zeppelin tribute band? You know, it's telling because you would think the, the one group of people in the world that would be salivating for a Led Zeppelin reunion of any sort, just so they could put that brand name on it, besides the hardcore fans, are the tour promoters who are thinking, man, this is a, the biggest payday yet. Yeah. But yet the guy who promoted most of the Led Zeppelin tours when they were around in the 70s, Harvey Goldsmith, thinks this is a bad idea. I think some of the band really want to go out and do it, and other parts of the band need to understand why they're doing it, he said. And if there's no compelling reason to do it, then they shouldn't do it. And and, yeah. and at this point, he's saying, this isn't Led Zeppelin anymore. In fact, he says they shouldn't call themselves Led Zeppelin. I'm wondering, where's Ian Coverdale when you need him? <laughs> I mean, Paige went out with that guy from Whitesnake. I think he's got it all over Miles Kennedy. I mean, you know, th- this is bogus all the way. And, and the fact that Paige is behind this, I think, uh, just really sullies Led Zeppelin's reputation beyond repair. Sad to say, Greg, we also have another non-reunion news item. The Jackson 5 is set to go out in 2009. It was also expected to be one of the big concert blockbusters in the coming months. Now it's official. Yes, it's sad. Don't cry, people. Michael is not going to do it. No Michael Jackson. It's going to be the Jackson 5 without Michael. Asked why his brother wouldn't be partaking, Marlon, one of my favorite Jacksons, said, (laughs) and I quote, I don't know. I think he's in Egypt riding a camel.
break, that of course is one of our very favorite songs of all time. The first single by the Jesus and Mary Chain, Upside Down. Mary Chain had a great career, never got any better than that song. It's a classic and it launched Creation Records. We have some sad news about uh, Creation Records founder, label head Alan McGee. This is a sign of the times when the industry is in such dire straits that a guy like Alan McGee is deciding he's getting out of the business. Creation not only brought us the Jesus and Mary chain, but Oasis, Primal Scream, Ride, My Bloody Valentine. It is no exaggeration to say it was as important a part of the cultural landscape in the 90s as sub pop in America. McGee went on after creation kind of petered out and and the 90s ended to do a label called Pop Tones. He's been petering along with that. After Pop Tones, he was mainly an artist manager working with acts like the Charlatans, the Libertines, Dirty Pretty Things. But he's getting out of the whole music business. On his Facebook page, he announced his retirement. Quote, we don't really have a place in the music industry anymore because we actually like music. He's talking about people Mm -hmm. like him and Tony Wilson of Factory Records. He said he was a man of the time. Times have passed. He's out of the game. Giving up music. It's a really sad day because, uh, as you said, Jim, it's it's a music guy, a guy who was into the music business because of the music first and put the music above all. I mean, he was sinking scads of money into these bands he loved. Uh, famously, five hundred thousand pounds to record "Loveless" by My Bloody Valentine. Basically, bankrupted the guy, drove him into the loony bin. He, yeah, he had to go into therapy soon after that. But you know, he got a masterpiece out of it, and that's where his priorities were. It was all about the music. You think about not only Tony Wilson of Factory Records, but somebody like Jeff Travis of Rough Trade. Uh, these old school English guys who were all about the love of of the music, and now what the industry has become at at this level is executives who basically are running multinational conglomerates of which music is just one small piece yeah. of a very large pie. It's not a priority. It's not about art. It's about moving units, about about quarterly profit statements. I can't blame Alan McGee for not feeling that he has a place in that world. Well, anymore. and McGee was a character. That's the thing. You would never be mistaken for the man in the gray flannel suit or an accountant type. You and I interviewed him numerous times. He, he lived as on the edge as any of the uh, rock stars who recorded for him. And he was also insane and inscrutable. Yeah. You know, I never I, – have you ever interviewed anybody who was harder to understand? It that brogue was like – you would talk to him for half an hour and you didn't understand a word he said. That's right. You know, you can take the boy out of Glasgow, but you can't take the Glasgow <laughs> out of the boy. And uh, he was an insane man. And when he's talked about music, he just got so excited – and clearly he didn't have that enthusiasm anymore. He's still a young man. I think it'll be interesting to see what McGee does with the last half of his life because I still think he's got great things to do in this world. And uh, what it'll be remains to be seen, but it's not going to be part of the music industry as we know it. Maybe he'll work with Rock Band. Oh, God. You can go the distance. You're listening to Sound Opinions. Those are the Eagles. They've had a surprisingly long run, Greg, considering the fact that they've always hated each other. (laughs) This is one of the most mercurial uh, bands in rock history, uh, if also one of the most successful. Their lead guitarist, Don Felder, who's often overlooked uh, amid the uh, bigger personalities of Don Henley and Glenn Frey, uh, he lasted in the Eagles until 2001. Then he left with some acrimony recently published his autobiography, Heaven and Hell, My Life with the Eagles, detailing his whole time in the band and his candid take on why he got out and what's wrong with the group today. This sounded like a lot of fun to have Don come by and dish some dirt on the Eagles. We talked to him recently about this book. Don, welcome to the show. 
Hey, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So, Don, we're talking about the Eagles, one of the top five best-selling bands of all time. Um, yet your beginnings were very modest, very humble. You grew up in uh, Gainesville, Florida, right? Yeah, that's right. Could you ever envision yourself being in a rock band, growing up in an environment like that? I mean, was that something that was uh, with you from, from childhood on, that uh, you, know, you were going to make it as a rock and roll guitarist? Well, I was really born and uh, raised in a very impoverished conditions on a little dirt road in the uh, Palmetto fields of north central Florida and uh, didn't really pay too much attention to music until I saw Elvis Presley uh, on the television. Uh, I think we were the last people on the block to finally get a black and white television in our house. But I saw him on the Ed Sullivan Show, one of his first appearances, and I knew that's really what I wanted to do. It was so exciting and uh, just started listening to the radio and following all the rock music of the time and uh, wound up trading a guy that lived across the street from me a handful of cherry bombs for this beat up <laughs> old guitar he had in the top of his closet and uh, saved up my money for mowing lawns to get some new strings to put on it and started teaching myself how to play. So it started off with a very kind of humble uh, beginnings, yeah. One of the things I liked about the book, Don, is uh, your portrait of those early days, you forget uh, what a small world the world of rock and roll was in the 60s. Uh, you wound up befriending Dwayne Allman, and he gave you a piece of advice when you were learning how to uh, play slide guitar. I think I'm quoting it right. Close your eyes and listen to the music. When your spine tingles, you'll know that it's right. Yeah. Uh, actually, it was a, a bit of a freakish phenomenon that there were a lot of people that kind of in, grew up in that area together. Uh, I used to teach guitar in a music store there. One of my students was this uh, skinny, buck-teeth, kind of blonde, scraggly-haired kid named Tom Petty, who I used to call him Tommy because he was like a few years younger than me. Mm -hmm. And then when I was uh, 14, I was in a band with a guy named Stephen Stills of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young that uh, we played together for about a year, year and a half. And Later, Bernie Ledden showed up to replace Stephen when Stephen left to move back to California and um, later went uh, on to be in the Buffalo Springfield. And we met the uh, Almonds, who I think were in a band called the Spotlights at the time, and uh, Greg and Dwayne. And Dwayne was really the first guy I ever got to see play electric slide guitar and just ripped my ears off when I heard him play it. And so we became friends. And when their show would be over and our band show would be over, we'd go out and have um, you know breakfast together at a diner at 2 or 3 in the morning and then wind up going over to Dwayne's mother's house and just sitting around and playing. And I think I owe everything I know about sly guitar from stealing it all from Dwayne. You know? so <laughs> he's, uh, he's definitely one of my mentors. Is, is the key to becoming a great guitarist just a lot of woodshedding? I mean, did you find yourself, I mean, you know, the mythical stories about Eric Clapton locking himself away for two years and then emerging from this woodshedding period as the great guitar player that he was, um, was it just simply a case of, of just playing a lot every day? Is that how you learned your instrument, Don? Well, you know, I, I think there's, there's two elements that are involved with becoming a great musician. I think there's technique, which is being able to play clearly what your thoughts musically are and then there's the creative process of coming up with the music and uh, when I was in one of my earlier bands in New York it was kind of a jazz fusion band which really had a very open loose framework of the songs that we played much more like jazz players play where uh, you'd have kind of the 
introduction of a verse and a chorus and then just freeform solos. Every night, every solo was different. It wasn't written out note for note. And what it did is it enabled me to develop my improvisational skills to be able to walk on stage and plug in and just, just play. I guess we're jumping ahead, Don, but before I forget, and since you're, you're talking about improvisation so movingly, um, you know, I think one of the perceptions that came down to, to many fans of the Eagles was of studio perfectionism and ultra painstaking craftsmanship. Was there improvisation in the Eagles? Yes and no. I mean, the the most exciting parts of making records and, and putting together the music that that band produced was being able to take the framework of an idea for a song. Like one of these nights, Glenn sat down the piano and was just playing the chord progression for one of these nights, and Henley had written some lyrics for it. And when we got in the studio, Randy Meisner had been snowed in, and so I wound up playing bass on the session and writing all the bass parts for the introduction and the, and the rest of the track. And then when we got to the overdub part, it was just wide open to be able to put whatever guitar tracks and solos and stuff I wanted on it. The problem was once it was etched into magnetic uh, solidity that way, we wound up having to reproduce note for note every night live on stage those exact solos, those exact parts. It was became very much like uh, doing a play where you'd walk out on stage, you'd hit the same marks on stage, mm. play the exact same notes, uh, the same set actually from top to bottom for years and years and years. So the spontaneity and the creativity that was actually in the live shows of the Eagles was really limited to a couple of Joe Watts songs where Joe had Rocky Mountain Way and we could jam on that or Funk 49, a couple of those songs that just lent themselves to being able to play and jam where the Eagles records were definitely much more structured and uh, had to be replicated note for note. We'll continue our discussion with former Eagles guitarist Don Felder in just a minute on sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Plus, Greg and I will review the new albums by Q-Tip and Deer Hunter.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We've been talking with former Eagles guitarist Don Felder about his career and his life with the band. Many people don't realize that he's the one that created the Eagles' most successful song, its best moment, I think, Hotel California. Uh, Many people even argue that it was him who gave the Eagles that top 40 rock sound, steering it away from the country side of things. Don was courted to the band in 74 by founding Eagle uh, and his high school buddy, Bernie Ledden. At the time, Don was the guitarist for David Crosby and Graham Nash's touring band, filling in all of Stephen Stills' parts. You know, when you came into the band, it sounded to me like, too, you were ready for the opportunity. All this, all this apprenticeship, really, that you were doing over those years, working in Boston and, and playing with a band in Woodstock and those years as a guitar teacher in Gainesville prepared you for the moment when when that ultimate gig got offered to you. Yeah, um, the Eagles had tried to start recording their third album, On the Border, as uh, their second record, Desperado, had not been a commercial success at the time, although it had brilliant songs on it, like the song Desperado. It wasn't particularly a well-received commercial um, hit. They wanted to shift the direction from this country group into a more of a rock and roll band that would get on 70s AM radio. AM radio in the 70s really was a specific format that you had to be three minutes and 30 seconds. You had to dance to it if it was a rock track or it had to be kind of one of those wet, juicy ballads. And that was it. So they asked me to come down and play slide guitar on this song called Good Day in Hell which turned out to be a very long good day in hell. And I went in and played uh, played slide guitar on it, and the next day Glenn Fry called me up and said, would you like to join our band? We'd really like to have you join our band. And it was a really tough decision because my wife was pregnant with our first child. I had a really good, steady-paying job with Crosby Nash that was a stable act. And the Eagles were still playing kind of, you know, really small college campuses, driving around in rental cars, really still scratching and clawing to kind of make it happen. And I had heard a lot from Bernie about the turmoil in the band and really didn't know how long this band was going to last. But I really wanted to be involved in a creative process in a band and make records with that band as opposed to just being a sideman with Crosby Nash. But I went to Graham and had a long heart-to-heart conversation with him about what I should do, and he really forcefully encouraged me to join the band. And uh, I took his advice and, and did it and went back in the studio the next day and started working on Already Gone and a bunch of other tracks were on that record. So, And, uh, you know, we went out on the road almost immediately when the record was done. You get on the bus in, in 74 with the On the Border record, uh, Don, and you stayed through that uh, break that followed the long run after that, that live record. Those records have become iconic. You know, the uh, the greatest hits remains uh, one of the top-selling albums of all time. Throughout the book, you paint a portrait of a group where every individual had something really unique to contribute and uh, you know the combination of those contributions was greater than the uh, individual parts however everybody pretty much hated each other (laughs) well it was really funny because the band originally agreed when everybody started off that 
they'd all been sidemen working behind Ronstadt or some other band uh, or singer, and they had agreed that this is going to be a band, a democracy. Everybody's going to have the same amount of songs on the record. Everybody's going to sing the songs. Everybody will write their songs. And then as the first couple of records turned out to be primarily hits that were sung by Glenn Fry and Don Henley, even though Bernie had written like Witchy Woman with Henley and a, a lot of other music that he had contributed, that early sound on those first two records was really all Bernie's guitar work. It's phenomenal. His, his country uh, embellishments were just amazing. But uh, so there became this friction and struggle of, uh, you know, power of control over the direction of the music, of the songs, who was going to sing them, how they were going to be recorded. And so there was kind of constant ex uh, explosions going on every day over tour schedules or over song selections or over recording schedules. And uh, it was a very turbulent time and to the point where when we finally went in to do one of these nights and making a large turn and direction away from all the country influence and into uh, more of a rock and roll uh, 70s band, Bernie had a great deal of resistance to it and found himself face-to-face -face with the opposition, Henley and Fry, and was sort of outvoted by them as far as what was going to happen and decided that he was going to leave the band. He left, and uh, here was my high school buddy that originally had convinced me to come to L.A. and got me involved in this mess, now walking out the door. And he exited by pouring a beer on Fry's head, is that right? Yeah, he did. You know, it was one of those. It was one of those betrayal. Uh, yeah, it was one of those feelings of being completely betrayed by your partners, and you know, really kind of just giving them the fu uh, signature out by just dumping a beer on his head, thinking you're so hot and so in control. Well, you know, we're all we all started this together, and he was upset about it. Yeah. What about within the band artistically? Were these kind of discussions kind of voiced out in the band where? You know, where do we want to go? What kind of a band do we want to sound like? And was there ever agreement on those issues, or was it a constant uh, cause of tension as to exactly what this band was going to be and what it was going to sound like? I think there was a constant amount of tension on everything we discussed, to tell you <laughs> the truth. Uh, the the initial uh, conversations about concepts and directions of albums primarily took direction from the songs. Bernie would come in and have a bunch of country songs. Uh, I would come in and I had more rock influence song. Glenn had this R&B kind of um, uh, background coming from Detroit. And Henley had more of a Texas swing kind of bluesy thing coming out of Texas. So the combination of those songs and the playing really determined what songs would be recorded on the record. How, how did Hanley and Fry become the gods, as you describe them in the book, and uh, the rest of the guys in the band, the mere mortals? Um, you and Meisner and, and, and Joe Walsh, who joined the band later on, and initially it was Eagles Limited, one-fifth for everybody. It was supposed to be this 
democracy, as you described. How did so much power accrue in the hands of those two guys after you know a, a period of a few albums? Well, like I said, I think the the majority of the hits had been sung by Don Henley and Glenn Fry, and uh, their writing ability when they were working together was phenomenal. The two of them could sit down and write amazing songs as a team, and they brought together jointly this uh, huge asset to the Eagles. It's another tequila sunrise Staring slowly across the sky And it was difficult to kind of pry them apart or to deal with them in less than a united front. So if Bernie had a really strong idea about country music and presented it to the band, what decisions those guys made, they made together. And uh, they were very influential in the fact that they held a lot of the power in the fact that they were singing and writing a lot of the hits. And they just slowly sort of self-appointed themselves to be the the leaders and decision makers about everything for the band, uh, financial decisions, when we toured, where we went, uh, who we hired for a road crew, uh, what songs we recorded. You know, the, the democracy had uh, transformed itself at, at their hands into a dual-fisted dictatorship. It's funny to watch, you know, friends and partners that started out in uh, ripped jeans and T-shirts and long hair, driving rent-a-cars through the night to get mm-hmm. from one uh, one city to the next to play a little college show to promote some record as you're trying to start. Kind of watch the whole phenomenon of greed, power, and control uh, just seize that entity. It's an ugly aspect of human nature. Those elements need to be tempered with humility. And unfortunately, that was an element that seemed to be sourly missed in uh, some of these people, you know. While we're waxing philosophical, Don, let, let me just ask you. I mean, you're, you're in your early 60s now, 45 years in, as pretty much as a professional musician. Do you think it's possible to have the democratic model? I mean, I, I talked to a sociologist uh, a professor friend of mine who swears that there's only two models for rock bands. There's the sole dictatorship, you know, where you have, you know, one person, you have Billy Corgan, right? Or there's the dual dictatorship. You have a, a Richards and a Jagger. But even then, power at any one time is shifting back and forth because, you know, Jagger's getting divorced and Richards is on his game or Richards is getting rehabbed and Jagger's ascendant. You know, uh, I mean, would it even have been possible to have a five-headed democratic beast? Well, don't know. I mean, uh, we live in the United States, which obviously is based on democracy, and we have more than five heads in, in Washington uh, making our laws. And for, you know, over 200 years, uh, democracy has seemed to have been a pretty uh, successful concept. And when you found something like that, whether it's a company or a corporation or a country on that concept, the transition, like I said, mm-hmm. from a democracy to a dual dictatorship is is a part of human nature. And it's basically motivated by greed, I think. You get to a point where you're dealing with such huge amounts of money as we were in the 90s with Hell Freezes Over that you just have to ask yourself, how, how much money do you need uh, you know, to, to feel satisfied uh, in your life? 
I was very satisfied with anything I could get, really. I'm glad to hear you raise that point because Greg and I, as rock critics, asked that question a lot in the early 90s when the Eagles came back after uh, Hell Freezes Over and the tour before that and did those reunion tours. You know, the, the band was the first to break the $100 ceiling. Suddenly tickets are, are $100 or more. You were rewarded, Greg, with a nasty phone call, right? Yeah, uh, Don, I actually have to confess that after your first uh – a show in Chicago on that 94 tour, I averaged out the price per song. Uh, I came up to something like thirteen ninety eight per hit, I think, that <laughs> night. And uh, I got a nice phone call the next morning from Mr. Henley uh, berating me for saying, it's not about the money. Uh, I said, well, what is it about, Don, actually? I just, I'd really like to know because it just seemed to me that something sacred had been shattered there when you guys started charging 100, 100 plus for tickets. But you say in the book that uh, that wasn't a decision that you or uh, Timothy Schmidt or Joe Walsh had much input in. If anything, I think some of the resistance uh, that I put up against raising the ticket prices was not received well. Uh, um, I always felt that I would rather go out honestly and play two shows for 50 bucks a seat and have twice as many people enjoy being able to be present and hear the music that they've loved for 20 years or 30 years and uh, make the same amount of money at the end of the tour, even though you added more dates, it's not a hard life. You know, it's not that difficult to to fly in a private jet and ride in a limousine and stay in the Ritz-Carlton's at that level. It's not difficult. But it felt to me like it was really diminishing down the the audience to only the elite, only the people that could really reach in their pocket and spend $100 and pay for a dinner. And to me, I was there walking out on stage for the music. Uh, my biggest rewards and the heavenly part of that whole experience was walking out every night and playing the first few bars of Hotel California and having the crowd just explode in recognition and appreciation of something I had done and written, not the money. And uh, just was a shame that even to these days, the Eagles, their tickets prices have really risen above $100 in the $200 bracket, yeah. which even makes it more of an elitist thing to, to participate in. Well, it's a shame. It is It is a shame. So let's fast forward to, to now, uh, Don. You are no longer part of the Eagles, and... Uh, the band is, is cashing in big time once again on the road. They just put out a, a double CD last year, which is one of the biggest selling records of the last year. It was released exclusively through Walmart. They are probably undergoing what, their third incarnation of the band and just seems bigger than ever. How do you feel now not being a part of this? Are you sad to be on the outside looking in or are you somewhat relieved? I mean, what are your emotions right now? You know, there's a, a duplex of emotions there. Uh, number one, I really missed uh, being able to play uh, at that level, going out and playing for 30, 40, 70, 90, 100,000 people. The other side of it is there's so much venom and uh, and just hatred that's involved behind the scenes of that whole organization that it's toxic. I don't enjoy and didn't enjoy, and now I'm very thankful that I don't have to tolerate uh, having to drive uh, in five different cars to a show, have five different dressing rooms backstage, nobody talk to each other, nobody socialize with each other, nobody goes to anybody's house for dinner. I mean, you you look at you 2 and those guys share family experiences, vacations, their kids play together. They, like, love each other, you know, and they are <laughs> able to do that, tour at that level, write, make records, and still care about each other. 
there's uh, there's this void in the eagles that is uh, surrounded by so much kind of viscosity and and venom uh, feeling that's there that nobody wants to talk to anybody in the band for fear that it, it'll ignite and explode into some huge drama that'll blow it apart. Uh, I don't think Don and Glenn can stand in the same room with each other for any length of time. And at some point, you have to say, you know, you weigh the two. And fortunately, I wake up in the morning and don't have to deal with those people or deal with that Mm. situation anymore. I'm very happy about it. I miss Joe. I love Joe. I think he's a great guy. Miss Timothy. And, you know, we spent 27 years together with Don Henley and Glenn Fry, and they have some very redeeming, wonderful qualities. (laughs) And, And I miss those wonderful qualities about him. So I'm glad not to be dealing with that anymore. I'm very relieved with it. Uh, I'm playing a lot of music myself now for uh, charities. I use my God-given skills to raise money uh, to help people that I think really need it in this world, to help people as opposed to just stuff my pockets with money. I'm really disappointed musically in this last record that they did. I felt that they have one of what I would consider the greatest rock and roll guitar players alive today in Walsh. Yeah. And you just don't hear him on that record. You you hear a lot of Stuart Smith, and the whole record sounds like a Nashville kind of parody of the Eagles, To in my opinion. Um, I was sourly disappointed that they didn't use that talent on this record at all. Hmm. Well, thanks, Don. We appreciate uh, you being a guest on the show. Heaven and Hell is the, the new book, My Life in the Eagles, 1974-2001. Fascinating. Uh, autobiography. And again, Don, thank you for being on Sound Opinions. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here with you. We'll be back in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with our reviews of new albums by Q-Tip and Deer Hunter. I've been the best I- 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. And we were hearing a bit of a song called Agoraphobia by the Atlanta band Deer Hunter. Interesting story. The lead singer, Bradford Cox, suffers from Marfan syndrome. Do you know what that is? Mm-hmm. The elongating of the yep. limbs. Apparently, President Lincoln suffered from it. And Bradford Cox has kind of risen above these disabilities and a very tough upbringing, which he's talked about a lot, to become an artist. An artist that is obsessed with Brian Eno and My Bloody Valentine. You know... Right off the bat, I'm predisposed <laughs> to like these guys, but I don't want to tip my hand about this album. It was an interesting story. They spent quite a lot of time in the studio working on their third proper album, Microcastle, and apparently, according to Bradford, he had it on a uh, public server and uh, it leaked. This made him very upset, despite the fact that it generated an enormous amount of buzz. All the blogosphere took off, calling this a masterpiece. He wasn't ready for it to be out there yet, so he retaliated by going in to the studio again with the band and making Quick and Dirty another album <laughs> to put out there to mm. replace the one that everybody was talking about that it was so excited about. Most bands would see this as like a marketing coup, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody's talking about the, the album by this obscure indie band. No, he wanted to put out new music that you hadn't heard yet. Now, as a result, the very prestigious English label, 4AD, and the small Chicago-based American uh, label, Cranky, are releasing both records at the same time. So you get Microcastle, the studio album by Deer Hunter, and you get Weird Era Continued, uh, kind of the bonus disc, Mm -hmm. the fast and dirty disc. What is on these records? Well, we'll talk about the music in a minute. Let's hear something from the Microcastle disc. This is called Never Stops by Deer Hunter on Sound Opinions. I had That's Never Stops on Sound Opinions from the new Deer Hunter album, Microcastle. I'll tell you what I don't like about these two discs first. Cox, uh, in addition to enjoying My Bloody Valentine and Brian Eno, is a is a big lover of experimental electronic music. And, yeah. and maybe Eno was venturing into some of that with his ambient records. Well, Cox did his own version of that with a, a project called Atlas Sound mm-hmm. earlier this year. Some of that is filtering back into this. There are long sections where the pop songs give way to just noise. And right in the middle of the Microcastle record, there's about 10 minutes of this noisy experimentation that uh, destroys the momentum for me. And near the end of the second disc, which they're calling Weird Era Continued, there's this lapse into uh, several minutes of 
kind of indeterminate, nondescript electronic uh, noise-making. I'm all for this guy experimenting, but it destroys what I think is otherwise a lovely couple of discs of a great-sounding pop music. Um, Since when are you against electronic experimenting? I thought you'd live for that. I don't think it's very good, electronic experimental music. I don't think he does that very well. I do think, though, that the songs on this record are very strong. And when when they stick to melodies, there's some references. He, he He's made some references to listening to a lot of 60s pop music. Yeah. And there's a direct cop of, for example, a Hal Blaine, Be My Maybe, Ronette's drum beat on one song. And there's a little bit of a guitar riff from a Righteous Brothers song in, an, yeah. in another track here. And he also likes doo-wop quite a bit. He, he talks about that. He's bringing those melodies in here and mixing it up with those uh, ambient guitars that we love so much from the My Bloody Valentine era, and creating this cocoon of great-sounding pop music that sounds like it's from another time, another era, but it doesn't sound nostalgic. What is interesting about his vocals is he doesn't seem to uh, enunciate. It's very whispered, very lulling, very low-key in the mix. And this, again, is a My Bloody Valentine reference, I would say. But for a guy with all these troubles in his heart, you would think he might be a little bit more expressive lyrically, but it's more about sound, and the sound is great. You just gave it a rave review, I think. I don't know what you're hemming and hawing about. I think it's a brilliant album. There are stretches of experimentation, but he's given us two discs of music. You know, I think he's suffering from from two things. Number one, there's all these expectations. They were the flavor of the moment. And I think that he's kind of wary of that. You know, people seem to really expect something from me. So he's making this pop record, and then he derails it a bit and does some noise. I mean, we've seen other great bands do that. We've seen Nirvana do that. We've seen My Bloody Valentine play one chord for 20 minutes, okay? I also think he definitely wants to stay in the indie world. This record, I think, like Soft Bulletin by the Flaming Lips in terms of a certain melancholy mood Mm -hmm. and a lush instrumentation and beautiful melodies, except nobody wants to become what the Flaming Lips have become, selling great songs to salad dressing commercials. (laughs) And so I think that he's caught in between these two places, and and yet he is a really unique individual. There There is no other frontman in rock and roll today like Bradford Cox. Both of these records together, especially, are a buy-it on the buy-it-burn-it-trash-it scale. I'm way all over Deer Hunter. I'm going to reward them for the ambition, uh, so it's a buy-it for me as well. Sent you a message, sent you an email. Hasty decisions we may still prevail. Both needed breaks, we both needed the bail. Walking through the corridors of my mind. The hideaways and nooks and things were good times. Memories certainly, yes, they still bind. Still a common man, and yeah, that's for sure. Still a bankroll, and yeah, still couture. But man, this thing that we had was much more. Come back home, don't be out in the world. That is getting up from Q-Tip on Sound Opinions, the first new Q-Tip music that has been officially released in nearly a decade. Unbelievable that this man has not been heard from in such a long time, but he is finally back. Who is Q-Tip? Born Jonathan Davis 38 years ago in New York City, founding member of a tribe called Quest. Recall what was going on back then in the early 1990s when a tribe called Quest emerged in New York. The West Coast at that time was becoming the predominant hip-hop headquarters with the rise of gangster rap, that hard-edged street reporting. The New York response, groups like Jungle Brothers, Dallas Soul, and A Tribe Called Quest with a more playful approach towards rhyming. 
and also uh, the music as well. Not quite as hard-edged, but more steeped in jazz samples, samples from the psychedelic rock world. A Tribe Called Quest in particular sounded like a throwback to some of those bebop-era jazz records that were coming out in the 50s on Blue Note Records. Q-Tip was a huge fan of that type of music. He brought that sensibility into the rhythm section, and his voice itself sounded like a jazz saxophone when he was on top of his game. Playful rhymes, agile wordplay, just the tone of the man's voice was Mm -hmm. extraordinary. And the time is right for him to come back because that tone and that sound has been adopted by a ton of contemporary rappers who are selling millions of records. Kanye West, Lupe Fiasco, Outkast's Andre 3000, Pharrell Williams, all disciples of A Tribe Called Quest. So let's hear what uh, Q-Tip's been up to lately. He's got a new album. It's called The Renaissance, and here's a track from it. It's called Man, Woman, Boogie on Sound Opinions. Make it easy, good guy, make it easy, good guy, make it easy and now. Get out, man and woman get down. Good guy, make it easy, good guy, make it easy now. Get out, man and woman get down. Man and woman be patrolling the earth, putting it in the game. Citizens of the world, we running now. Precious time is a grain of sand. Ignore by the hand. Work hard, man, every day for another man's plan. Man orders woman when he come home. Get your ass in the air. My woman wants to just as much as Woman I wants to just as much as he does. But makes him think she don't care. Man and woman in the same where I'm from. We have a thesis in the mind. Minimum wage in the internet page. Protect themselves from crime. The bluest color on the brown is the skin. White, yellow, red too. They don't care who it is. They watching you. Conspiracy, so you might as well dance. Getting down Zulu. Man, woman, yo, you might as well dance. Getting down Zulu. Come on, come on. listening to Sound Opinions, and that is Man, Woman, Boogie by Q-Tip from his new album, The Renaissance. Greg, as you said, it's a joy just to hear the man's voice. It has that nasal quality. Kind of reminds me of like a muted saxophone. You're absolutely right. He's not doing anything new musically. This is still essentially uh, bebop, jazz, you know, merged with hip-hop. But that's great. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a great sound. And it, and it literally has taken the hip-hop world 10 years to catch up to what he was doing in A Tribe Called Quest. That's fine. He had a little more to say, I think, back in the day. Some of the rhymes, uh, some of the subject matter on this album are a little hazy here and there. But the voice is so great, you got to forgive him. The New York Daily News called him the Axl Rose of rap in terms of, you know, all this <laughs> promise and then disappearing for a decade. Yeah. Another interview I saw, he, he asked the question, where have I been? And then he answered it. I was waiting for the time to be right. I think the key to understanding this album was that it was to have opened with what is now the last track, Shaka. Mm-hmm. And it originally had a long sample of uh, Barack Obama, a speech he gave on the campaign trail. Uh, he couldn't get the rights. <laughs> yeah. So now the track appears at the end of the album. but. 
you know, the time is there. It seems like the times have caught up with an artist who was always ahead of the times, and he is welcome to his return. Axl Rose should fare half as good coming back as Q-Tip has. This is definitely a buy-it record. Well, there's nothing dated at all about the sound. I think if there's anything that's dated about Q-Tip, it's the record he made in 1999, Amplified, where yeah. he did try to cater to what was going on in the mainstream, and he sort of came on like this playa that he was not, you know? <laughs> it's I mean, hard to buy that from him. You know, the yeah. bare-chested Q-tip on the cover, and he had a great single. I love that Vibrant Thing single, but the rest of the record did not sound like a guy comfortable in his skin. He was trying to be something he was not. Contrast yeah. that to the cover of this record, where he's hiding behind his sampler. Exactly, and that and that's that's who he is. He's kind of a nerd, and at the same time, he loves this the, this particular style of music. I mean, those sizzling hi-hats mm-hmm. and those upright woodsy bass tones. I mean, he once had Ron Carter, you know, one of the great jazz players of all time, play on one of the Tribe Called Quest records. Nora Jones has never sounded better than the cameo she gives here. Don't stop this Well, that's the thing about this record is that it's it's not so much about the content because I I agree with you. He's had probably stronger messages in his music in the past, but the tone of this record is just right. And those cameos are great. The melodic hooks that uh, Raphael Sadiq supply mm. and Nora Jones and D'Angelo, you know, meld right in with this record. This is the kind of record that just sounds fantastic on headphones, and at the same time is going to sound great at like a smoky late night lounge. You know, heads bobbing everywhere. It, it, it's a shame you can't smoke anywhere the, anymore. It, it, it is a record. Like you feel like you couldn't, you should inhale this record because his voice sounds so great. That is, it is one of the great sounds in modern music, and it's great to have him back. And I'm going to say buy it as well for the Renaissance. Double buy it on Q-Tip, Greg. Uh, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we are going to be snapping some bubble gum. You know, everybody talks about the Jonas Brothers and Miley Cyrus, and what does it mean? Well, I'll tell you what it means. There's been about a 50-year history of this type of music. Some of it very, very good, and yeah. we're going to tell you about it. Greg, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. As always, Sound Opinions was produced by our ace team of Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn, with our executive producer, our fearless leader, a man who refuses to play rock band because he's so much more into Guitar Hero, Tori Southside Malatia. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hey guys, this is Nico from uh, Brooklyn, New York. I just finished listening to the Nick Cave episode, and wow, could that guy be more rock and roll? I mean, just the energy, the passion. I just loved how simple and direct his answers were. Obviously, he's a very intelligent man, but he's not letting too much thinking get in the way. He is just, uh, it seems like he's connecting to a feeling and going with it, and the whole band is doing that, and I've been listening for a long time, and I think that's the greatest performance and interview I've ever heard with you.
uh, thanks so much for turning me on to them, and uh, keep up the great work. Talk to you later. Hey, guys. This is Derek from Detroit. I just listened to the Nick Cave show, the great show that you guys did, and I was really impressed with your review of the Lindsey Buckingham record. I never, ever would have thought to listen to that record. Like, who's, who's going to listen to Lindsey Buckingham record? your opinion on sound opinions call our hotline 1-888-859-1800 we'll be back next week with sound opinions from chicago public radio and american public media